Hi, this is Harry Robinson with Mage the Podcast, and this is our first episode in what may prove to be a series I'm going to call Worlds of Darkness. These episodes focus on how a storyteller can introduce other elements from the world of darkness, other systems, into their Mage the Ascension Chronicle, or possibly run a crossover. The goal is to give a brief introduction to another system, and to give some ideas on how Mage will interact with that system. And my first guest in this uh, series is David Herman, who is a, uh, a, a longtime storyteller, a participant in the Mage the Ascension forums, and a uh, avid role player. I recognize that we are 10 seconds in and I've already pronounced your name wrong. Uh, <laughs> how, how is your forum name pronounced, David? Uh, Remnesis. I mean, you're not wrong in where it's supposed to come from, but I've always pronounced it Remnesis. And on our own podcast, I always say it as Remnesis. So it's it's ultimately your your name and i will default to that so first off how did you get into mage uh well i have been uh, into mage since honestly high school which would be late 90s and it was probably the first world of darkness book i picked up on my own that or wraith then i got into it and it actually took until college before i found other people who were interested in playing it so that's where most of my uh play experience started with it okay and what drew you to the system or what kept you interested well there's a there's a term people often use uh for describing mage which is gonzo it, and it's not that it is gonzo that i like uh but gonzo means it can be can go to abs- absolutely epic levels of crazy sometimes described as you know uh, a victorian mansion fighting the starship enterprise out out among the rings of jupiter and it can do that and then it can also do street level things like a bunch of mages trying to hide the fact that they can do magic while you know journey journeying through the boroughs of new york city and the fact that it did both of those things that there was this struggle that required entering both of these arenas and the struggle for what the world actually is and should be i think that's what drew me in how does that theme compare to the theme of Wraith the Oblivion? Now, just as a note to our listeners, White Wolf has produced two games that focus on the underworld. One was Wraith, which was issued in the in the in the mid '90s, and then Orpheus was uh, debuted in the wake of the ending of Wraith. I only have experience with Wraith as a crossover topic. If you look at the Wraith books I have, it is the seven books I needed to figure out the exact plot mechanics that I need to. It probably took me. I think the core rulebook was actually the sixth I got, just to put that into focus. But what makes Wraith, and if you want to talk about Orpheus, uh, thematically different from Mage? Wraith. What drew me into Wraith instead is it is one of the most evocative, alien, compelling worlds I've ever seen in a role-playing game. I think a large chunk of that is because almost everything ties back into what they were trying to do with the game, which was this struggle to maintain your identity after death. And Wraith is uh, very much uh, a game, it's not about dying, it's about what comes after. In Wraith, you are trying to continue to be who you are and accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. And meanwhile, the entire world is trying to tell you, no, you can't do that. You've got this almost omnipresent hierarchy of, of ghosts on the other side telling you you cannot interact with the living. And if you don't you, uh, manage to do that, you also have the ever-present pre- and ever-hungry force of oblivion trying to pull you down. Okay, so you have, on a political end, you have this hierarchy, in this case, hierarchy with a capital H, that's the term for the entity, that is saying, no, you need not go back to the land of the living. And also you have just the metaphysics of the realm doing it. How does that compare to Orpheus? Wraith tries to say, you you need to pass on and let go, or you will be consumed and destroyed. Orpheus is actually the opposite. Orpheus is about uh, Wraith's uh, ghosts gaining power from how much they try to keep holding on. And it's a game about humans projecting themselves into the worlds of the dead and living there. So if Wraith is a game of let go or you will be forced to let go, Orpheus is a game about, you know, continue living or you will be forced to live for others. 
Okay. So at the end of the day, um, every supernatural entity seemingly in the world of darkness is two entities jammed into one. You have a vampire, which is constantly fighting with their beast. You have a werewolf, which is dealing with their aspect of rage. You have a mage that's at war or possibly working alongside their avatar. Uh, changelings have their fey uh, seeming versus their mortal seeming. W- what does that dichotomy look like for, for a wraith? Well, for a wraith, this goes into the fact that wraiths are in, intensely human, and they they wanted to model both what people wanted to hold on to and what they didn't want to, but what was very much a part of them anyway. So the 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 dichotomy of the soul of a wraith is you have the psyche, which is your character, everything everything left of your living character that they want to continue doing, the reasons that they hold on, the reasons that they keep trying to interact with the living, the, their passions and the objects that they are tied to and then you have the shadow which is composed of all of the drives and motivations why your character wants to end it all and what makes them hate themselves and both of these are a part of the character wraith in fact deals with this in a very interesting way that no other system does because the psyche is played by the main player But very often at at most tables, the shadow is played by another player. Maybe about 10% of their time is supposed to be dedicated, instead of playing their own character, to playing another character's shadow. So that there are actual discussions between the two sides at the table as the shadow tries to tempt the psyche into doing terrible things or things that are going to end up harming them. So if I were to introduce a wraith into my chronicle, the the fight between the shadow and the psyche, is that something that a mage is going to see? Is that is that something that goes on in their head? Or does it look like a person talking to themselves? What is What would that look like if I were a mage in the Shadowlands or a wraith has crossed the shroud, which is the uh, the gauntlet that separates the underworld from um, from our side of the reality? What is that going to look like? Well, I was uh, looking through the rules recently, and I don't see any indication that, that mages are going to see the difference between the two unless they specifically know what they're looking for. I suppose with some of the aura senses, you might be able to tell the amount of angst in a character, which would tell you how powerful the shadow was, if you knew that's what it meant. But it wouldn't necessarily tell you if the shadow is active at the moment or not. So you, you made mention of, of three things so far that might be useful to, to outline. You, I, I think you brought up passions, fetters, and angst. Uh, what's a quick overview of what they are? Well, passions and fetters specifically are going to be really useful to a mage. Passions are the emotions, those remaining emotions that are still strong within the wraith that keep them going. Uh, dark passions being the ones for the, the, the shadow. Fetters are the objects or people that the wraith is still bound to in the world. Now, in a mage sense, that means that any fetter is automatically a, a very good sympathetic connection to the wraith. And uh, in most cases, usually does a good job of making any magic cast on the wraith significantly easier. So one of the ways, if a storyteller wants to introduce a wraith, the characters stumble upon this object. And, I mean, is it going to look like a weird alien artifact, or is this something like a baseball card or a family photo? They're they're the things that tie the wraith to the the living world, and so, therefore, um, they're going to be objects in the regular world. So unless someone was, like, abducted by aliens, it's very unlikely that their their fetter is going to be an alien-type object. That said, because they are still supernaturally touched, for the purposes of mage, they are probably going to have a different resonance and affect the resonance of the area that they're in. So there are reasons why a mage may or may not start seeing this object as interesting or otherworldly before they realize it's connected to a wraith. So is this something that someone could pick up with like a a spirit one, entropy one effect? So David and I both did a fair amount of research trying to figure out how much canon crossover material there is. And if you were to print out a book of all the material, it might be able to fill a postcard. (laughs) Um, uh, White Wolf produced a number of crossover books. Like if you really want to do Werewolf and and Wraith, you can. There is is the book of the – what is it? The Old West or the Quick and the Dead. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no mage Wraith crossover book. One of the nice things and one of the terrible things is a a storyteller is going to have to make a lot of determinations when they make sphere selections. Entropy will pop up a lot. Spirit will pop up a Mm -hmm. lot. 
even this the the roads on how to cross over or experience the underworld have a have a surprising amount of spread to them um, oh yes when i was trying to do my homework on this i had a copy of m20 wraith 20 and the enlightened grimoire open all at the same time <laughs> so you answered the question on what a fetter is and what a passion what is this angst you made mention of one of the other things that every world of darkness character has is they have a resource that they use vampires okay. use blood mages use quintessence Wraiths use emotion in the form of pathos. They draw the the emotion that they're just spreading forth in a carefree manner because, you know, the living oh, just spill emotion out everywhere. Basically, wraiths are drawn to feeling that emotion again for themselves. So they aren't so much draining it as they are using, basking in, in the glow to experience it in themselves, and they get that as pathos. Their dark sides don't use pathos. They don't, they use angst, which is, self-hatred it's it's uh nastiness and spite is it safe uh, to call it like paradox for wraiths uh just in terms of it's this bad thing that you kind of accumulate if you if you delve into power too much or or is it fundamentally different than that uh, paradox is i mean very specific to the mage system with wraith no your your shadow's actively trying to get angst and it is trying to feed its own dark passions. If you're not careful, it'll accrue naturally. Okay. Some of the powers that wraiths use, if they're turned towards specific ends, can create more angst for themselves. But uh, it is it is very much just your dark side getting more power. Um, and the more power it gets, the more it threatens to take over. A wraith can be taken over by their shadow, uh, at which point they become a specter. And again... Most mages are not going to be able to tell the difference between a wraith and a specter. So if I were to introduce a wraith into my chronicle, I now, the, the players may not know, but I as a storyteller will know, hey, this wraith they're dealing with is not always going to be, it, there's going to be this this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde aspect to it. Sometimes I'm going to get the spirit, uh, the, uh, the psyche, sometimes I'm going to get the shadow. So I'm not necessarily dealing with someone that I can trust. Is that safe to say? That's safe to say. And I also encountered this when I was looking through the rules. So there, are, if a mage wants to make an attack on a wraith, a magical attack, there are two ways of doing it. Uh, spirit three, because the wraith is still made of ephemera. Okay. Um, and spirit three, you don't need anything um, additional to work unless you're to do that. Um, I'm not even sure you need it if you're doing it across the gauntlet. You might. Um, but definitely a spirit three attack will work. Or you can do an entropy three prime two attack, which uh, basically rends wraiths much like a life three attack rends people. However... And this is, it is specifically called out that mages don't know that this is happening. This also has a tendency to uh, make the wraith in question accrue a lot of angst, which has a tendency to bring out their dark side. So they, they actually say somewhere in M20, uh, if you do this to a wraith too much, it's going to become a shadow. I mean, a, a specter. Okay, so it seems like one of the recurring themes is going to be the fact that neither side knows a lot about the other, and what a mage may take as the reasonable way of interacting or dealing with a wraith could wind up creating a lot more problems later. One of the interesting things about wraith compared to the other system is, I, I think if we were to look at how common the supernatural or the night folk of various systems are, uh, depending on what source you want to talk about, about one in a hundred thousand mortals does some form of magic, including hedge magic and so on, out to, I think it was one of the Hermetic books early said it was one in five million. And you look at vampire and they seem to be more common than mages. Same thing with werewolves, changelings, I, I think kind of round out the top. But I mean, if everyone who dies turns into a wraith, there, why aren't there? There are, there are three answers to that. Um, okay. This is not a nice place to be. And there's a reason why wraiths don't like being there. Uh, the first one, the easiest one, not all people who die become wraiths. There are two ways out of being a wraith, and a lot of the people who die, maybe as many as nine out of every ten people, uh, take one of the two of them, which is one is to pass on and move on to whatever comes next, be that reincarnation or whatever. The books never answer that. The other thing they can do is they can fall straight to oblivion, and a lot of people who die do that as well. And you never see either of them manifest on the other side. Uh, there are also a lot of them that come over too weak to resist one of those two options, and so they fade very quickly. Or they are harvested as raw materials. Okay, what does that mean? In the underworld, there there isn't that much that comes over. There's there's 
ghosts of, uh, you know, people. There's ghosts of uh, objects that were really, really important to people. So like major buildings that uh, fell or collapsed. When Rome was sacked, a lot of a, a lot of buildings probably crossed over. Uh, but also small items like uh, teddy bears, uh, knives, or things like that that someone had put a lot of care and attention into. Uh, they they might cross over when they're broken. But that's still not a lot of stuff. But there are a lot of ghosts. And wraiths learned a long time ago that they could literally melt down other ghosts and forge them into raw materials. So all of those ghosts that are crossing over that aren't very strong, that are going to fall into oblivion. Okay. It's the mentality for a lot of the, the dead is, well, they're going to fall into oblivion anyway, and that's horrible. We don't want oblivion getting stronger. Let's forge them into stuff. So, uh, so, so the underworld is made seemingly out of Roman Colosseums, teddy bears, and, and people. Um, the underworld is people. Oh, wow, that got uh, that got real dark real fast. <laughs> <laughs> we we have an idea of what the underworld is made of. Is there what what does the geography of the underworld look like? If that makes sense, like I have a rough idea in my head of when my characters when they go to the go to the high umbra what the the fortress of government looks like or the river of language are there any key sites um oh, in in the underworld that mages might be interested in uh, so I tend to find that the, the, the various Umbra, they map out the same way. So the, the stuff very close to the gauntlet is a reflection of the, the living world. Um, and in the, in the low Umbra or the underworld, uh, it is, this is known as the, the Shadowlands. That is the dark penumbra or the uh, Vidare uh, mortuum, probably. Uh, yeah, I think I think on a very technical level, the Vidare mortuum is closer to the living world than the the Shadowlands are, because to enter the Shadowlands you need a specific spell, but you can be in the Vidare mortuum, okay, um, on on your own. You don't pass gently into the next realm. Okay. Uh, the, the Shadowlands are basically a skin. When you get underneath it, you are immediately, and without warning, dropped into the Tempest, which is a raging storm. Now, let me put it to you this way. If the High Umbra is uh, thought and reason and imagination, and the Middle Umbra is feeling and instinct and association, the Low Umbra is memory. Okay. So it's it's not quite the realm of the dead necessarily, so much as... The dead tend to be once someone dies, the only thing they have left is that memory that um, that exists of them. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so the Shadowlands make up that really fresh memory, the place you've been to hundreds of times, the the block that you can still walk down in your head, all of the things that are very closely connected, where one memory meets the next memory. The Tempest is where memories that are not associated are. It is a raging storm of uh, free-floating free memories. So it manifests as a storm, as, as hurricane winds, as crashing waves, as rains, not just of water, but of toy parts or meat. There are stable places in it, particularly strong memories that aren't connected to the people anymore. Uh, so like an old loved church that no one that, that people remember from their childhoods, but no one really remembers where they remember it from. This sounds pretty rough. What would be bringing a mage there? Like uh, there, there, there's kind of three ways to look at a crossover. Um, so we're talking about what I'll call the basic level of a crossover where we're introducing another another type of supernatural into the mage setting. If people really like this episode, we can talk more about the nuts and bolts of a mixed chronicle where some of my players are wraiths and some of my players are mages. But but assuming I have a cabal of mages, why would I want to go to a underworld which is constantly raining battery acid? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Groups like the, the Chakravanti, as part of their initiation, like to send their, their um, young initiates into the underworld. It is a uh, very nasty spell that essentially clinically kills a person and manifests them in the underworld as a wraith. And then they have to process that and come back, and they don't always come back. So in one uh, case, it may be used for initiation purposes to say, okay, this is the this is the nature of oblivion. This is what we are dealing with. You've had a taste of it. Yes. But this is also the, the low umbra. It's the realm of memory, which means technically any piece of information that has been forgotten 
can in theory be found there. Um, and the relics of old libraries, of, of uh, fallen uh, constructs, um, and that kind of thing could in theory be down there. When you say memory, is it are, are players going to be sifting through a pile of memories? Are they going to be talking to wraiths? Like, how long does a wraith stick around? Like, do we have do we have wraiths from antiquity still running around, or is it one of those things where, well, you got a hundred years to figure this out, or otherwise your uh, shadow's going to eat you up? Well, that brings us to, and this is specifically for wraith, not Orpheus. Okay. Um, that brings us to uh, the hierarchy. The hierarchy is the governmental body, in theory, of Western wraiths. There are other kingdoms down there that generally conform to other mythologies of the dead. Yeah, you have um, the Yellow Springs. Uh, yeah. You have the Dark Kingdom of Sand for Egypt. You have the Bush of Ghosts for um, the African continent. And one of the great things is uh, Wraith 20th Edition, all of the, those other kingdoms are, are, are in that core rule book. So if you're curious what the, uh, the, the underworld of the Indian subcontinent would look like the SWAR, um, they're all in there in that core rule book. So what does this hierarchy do? So the hierarchy, and this is why I brought it up in, in, in um, response to how long can a wraith stick around. The hierarchy was not in its current incarnation, but it was first formed. The Dark Kingdom of Iron was first formed way, way back uh, before the founding of Rome. Uh, and it was founded by a, a wraith named uh, Charon, named after the, the ferryman at the River Styx. But he founded the empire, pretty much canonically lived, well, not lived, but you know what I mean, existed yeah. up through the end of the Second World War. So you've got this guy, he, this, this Mycenaean farmer or whatever, who's like, well, I got hit by a lightning bolt. I'm in the underworld. And then some entity taps him and goes, you think you're going to work towards transcendence? Nope. You're going to build a big ass city. Basically, yeah. And actually, the entity that told him this is still around. But yeah, the hierarchy started out as this mechanism for helping the newly dead acclimatize to the fact they're dead and reach their final destination. And through a whole host of horrible events... Uh, of various people falling to their dark sides, of uh, the organizations that were supposed to help people move on falling to their dark sides, uh, has, has become this uh, monolithic entity that basically, yeah, it's still there to incorporate all of the, the, the newly dead into it and to fight against the pull of oblivion. It may still technically be a force for good, but only because what it's fighting is so much worse. So it's, it, it is slowing down oblivion, but it is no longer that, that passageway to get, to get necessarily race to move on. Right. And it has this particularly interesting rule for the purposes of crossovers called the, the dictum mortuum, which is the law that the dead are not allowed to interact with the living upon pain of being soul forged. Now, obviously, there are degrees of interaction, and there are actually some wraiths that are specifically allowed to interact with the living, uh, but those are pretty much the death lords, the highest entities in uh, the Dark Kingdom of Iron, or the people they've specifically authorized to do, which is no more than a handful. What is a death lord? All Death Lord really means is it's it's the governmental organization. Charon, at some point in the past, decided, I'm having a hard time maintaining this entire empire on my own. This We were once a republic, so we'll kind of sort of keep that format. I'm going to elevate these people here to be the Death Lords over each of the legions. And the legions are named after, are, are divided up by how the people died. And that's just an easy, uh, that was just a convenience. So each legion is supposed to adopt people who died in a specific way, which in theory is supposed to help them, you know, adjust to being dead more easily. But in actuality just becomes a big political thing where the, the legions fight over who gets who. Think of them as a really high-ranking noble or senator within this empire. And now that Charon is gone, they are the highest law that is left. Charon, the founder of, uh, of Stygia, the, the city of the dead, has, has, has pieced out, is gone for some reason. So political infighting has kind of, uh, has kind of occurred in, in the wake of this. Is uh Yes, that, but the interesting thing about this is that the political the the political structure is is hit in that there's a much bigger political divide than between the Death Lords because the Death Lords are unless you go to Stygia itself very far away there's okay. a, a there's a much bigger divide among uh, uh, wraiths and that is 
between those who can live in the sh in the Shadowlands or exist in the Shadowlands and those who cannot. Those who've lost their fetters can no longer be in the Shadowlands for any length of time. They have to live down in Stygia or any of its various outposts down in the Tempest. Okay, so I'm a wraith. One of my one of my fetters may be uh, the college I used to teach at, and one of my passions might be educating uh, youth. Uh, the the college goes bankrupt or gets bought by a larger thing. The building is knocked down. Uh, I can't pursue that passion anymore. Really, um, the building is gone. My fetter is literally destroyed, and this this in some basic way changes what the wraith can do. Then, oh yes. Uh, if you do not have any fetters, you can like you can exist in the, in the Shadowlands for a number of rounds. Now there are some bypasses to this, um, but they're probably more detailed than we need to get into right now. Okay. Um, but it does mean that the politics of Stygia are dominated by people that haven't seen the living world in hundreds of years. So in the same way that a mage chronicle could go across the horizon, and you have some out of touch. Uh, master who hasn't felt paradox in in two centuries you could have a, a you could have the same theme of people being out of touch and wraith yes but to paint a picture of a little more what it's like imagine a world where the technocracy absolutely and unequivocally won okay they are the complete and utter body of mages entirely and they are completely dominated, not just by the, the, the few archmages that can still only exist out there, but they've been around for so long that there are hundreds, if not thousands, perpetuating their lives out there. Those that are still in the world have no hope of ever ousting or working their way up to the top in anything you know, before they're at least that old. Everything's being handed down on high by people who fundamentally do not understand the world as it is. So it is both the case that uh, there is a rigid ladder, but also that most of the rungs on that ladder have been removed. Basically, yeah. Uh, huh. And it's not even it's not even a deliberate thing. It's just that Stygia is a place where people go or wraiths go when they can't exist in, in the Skinlands, which means it's the the number of people there are naturally going to who, who are that old are naturally going to dwarf the number of people who are not. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. So what how is a mage going to be pulled into this politics? Uh, if they're lucky, they never will be. They are okay. not going to be happy <laughs> if they go to Stygia. OK, uh, because, uh, well, I'm not sure there's a clear rule on uh, what to make of uh, the living who enter the world of the dead. Uh, chances are it's not going to go well for them. First off, many wraiths are going to try to punish the living for entering wraiths. They they consume not consume but they need to be near the emotions of the living to gain a lot of their power. They don't absolutely have to. There are other ways, but it is a very compelling thing. It is like a vampire being surrounded by a herd. They are going to be drawn to consume because it's not just about gaining power. It is about feeling something for the first time in however long. They they can really only feel when they're doing one of two things: when they're pursuing their passions that they specifically have or when they can bask in the emotions of the living. And now all of a sudden here in the middle of the underworld, instead of having to go all the way out to the uh, you know, the Shadowlands, in the middle of the underworld, here are these wraiths, but they're not wraiths. They're still feeling emotion like the living do. It would take a very strong willpower to not view that as just a, a banquet in disguise. So I think that's part of the reason why the Agama Sojourn wrote requires life. Uh, it is both trying to put your body on hold and probably suppress that spark when you go across as to not become this blazing beacon of light that yes. uh, that all wraiths are attracted to. Do we get any other systems of how a mage could get to the underworld that, that doesn't involve at least being an adept in one sphere? Uh, yes, um, bizarrely, uh, we do. But when I was looking through dimensional science, dimensional science, so, so the, the technocrats... Um, version of the spirit sphere has the ability to lower the gauntlet to zero uh, so, which is something that's, that's going to include the shroud it doesn't specify if story requires it that's a that's a perfectly yeah. reasonable way you could do it so any other area where the gauntlet's going to be low so a a shallowing so is this right. a case where you can make a haunted house that is literally an entrance to the underworld you could there is no way that a shallowing to the through the shroud has existed for any length of time without something powerful moving in they're always okay. going to be protected. So um, it's either going to be very temporary 
Or if you do find this thing, it's one of those things where like, oh, look at this giant lump of gold I found in the middle uh, yes. uh, of nowhere. Like how – if this is here, I'm either super lucky or, or or this is already someone else's. Narrator's voice, he was not super lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these giant political things. Is it something where a Death Lord is going to tap a mage on the shoulder? Like if the Death Lords are the only people that can violate the Dictum Mortuum or, or they are the exception well, to it. Yeah, do, this is a like – kind of deep within the lore of mage but technically all the death lords have lost their fetters so if the if the mage is staying in the shadowlands no no death lord's going to be tapping him on the shoulder without a huge expenditure of resources are, are um, there wraithly abilities though that for, for instance can affect a mage on the other side of the shroud so i have i have my cabal um and is is it something where a wraith has a power where they can start uh making stuff moving around like the stereotypical post poltergeist effects or making machinery go oh, haywire yes. So, okay. so uh, I actually started writing down this chart uh, of how mages can interact with ghosts, how ghosts can interact with mages, and I had it divided down into three columns, um, which was mage, wraith, Orpheus. I, I guess I could get into Orpheus later, but I'll, I'll lay the seeds now. Okay. So, to see across the shroud, mages need spirit one. It does not. They probably also need something to uh, to associate themselves with a vidare mortuum. So they might need Entropy 1, or they might just need to meditate on being dead for a while. But Spirit 1. Wraiths see across the Shroud automatically, as do the uh, projectors in Orpheus. To speak across it is Spirit 2. Wraiths start needing and certain arcanoi. That's what their special powers are called. There are certain ones that have to do with uh, the classic ghostly powers, like pushing your way across the Shroud to attack or to manifest, or to possess someone, possess something, get into dreams, things like that. So if they wanted to speak across the Shroud, there are a handful of Arcanoi that can do that at somewhat low levels, but it's difficult and it's based on the Shroud's rating. So uh, it sounds like you've got some crossover opportunities there that you could literally have a mage affected by by some sort of poltergeist-like entity. Either the, takes, yeah. the, the mages have a new chantry that they think is evacuated, but it turns out it's actually a place of importance to a wraith or a group of wraiths, or the mage has been tampered in something where a wraith has unfinished business, and suddenly the, their, their equipment starts going haywire, or they start having these traditional signs of a haunting. So those, those are all cases where a wraith can effectively instigate contact with a mage, and a mage might not know what's going on. And eventually they have to do some sort of shroud crossing or, uh, or, or go into the Shadowlands to, to try and solve this. Yes, especially if they happen to be near a uh, Wraith's fetter, there's going to be a lot of reason for that Wraith to interact with them. Uh, so if a mage finds this supernaturally touched object with a strange resonance and takes it away for examination, he's very likely to start having a Wraith mess with him, especially if that Wraith knows, say, Outrage 2, which allows him to punch across the Shroud. Okay, so my, my Cabal picks up this thing that they think might be a talisman or a charm, and they're like, we just can't figure out how this thing's working, but we're going to keep it in our Chantry for now. Is is it going to work like the Gauntlet? Is it going to be uh, places that are more banal or more static are going to have a higher Gauntlet rating? How does that work compared to a... How does the Shroud work versus the Gauntlet? Yeah, I've okay. seen it go back and forth in the books. In To some degree, if you're in an area where the gauntlet is very low, you're probably in an area where the, the shroud is pretty low as well. That said, it isn't always one for one. Okay. So areas that are known for hauntings or being creepy or things like that are more likely to have a lower shroud. As an example, if you have a low gauntlet in a graveyard, you probably have a lower shroud. Okay, um, so an abandoned building in the middle of a large town may have a relatively low shroud rating, even though it might have a somewhat higher gauntlet rating. Exactly. Okay. Uh, that said, a, a technocrat uh, stronghold is likely to have both a high gauntlet and a high shroud, unless they've been screwing around with dimensional science and deliberately lowered one of the two. Does a near-death experience bring a mage or a person at all into the underworld? Like, can I can I take a whole bunch of ketamine and use that as my way to get to the underworld? Is um, there any are there any like mundane ways to get there? My understanding is uh, the only legitimate answer to that is, does it meet the needs of your story? Okay. I don't think they specifically call it out at any point, but I don't see any reason why um, they wouldn't. But it is a very good way of getting into Orpheus for a second here. 
Uh, I said Orpheus is different. Orpheus takes uh, technically takes place after the end of Wraith when the entire hierarchy collapses in a giant storm known as the Sixth Great Maelstrom. Uh, turns out it was much greater than any of the previous ones came before. There's actually an argument that uh, the projectors and ghosts in Orpheus aren't even in the Shadowlands or the Underworld anymore, but that something happened that made it impossible to cross over. And so they're actually still in the, the Skinlands, the living world. They're just not manifested. So uh, in that, in Orpheus, though, there is a plot point of a new drug that is on the streets known as pigment that allows people to see ghosts and interact with ghosts. And there are some really dark ramifications, as it turns out, for that. People who have been on a significant amount of pigment are guaranteed to become ghosts when they die, not just any kind of ghosts, but particularly weak ones. But it doesn't but, seem like it would be a violation of what White Wolf had intended if you decide to come up with a relatively easy way to get into the uh, the Shadowlands. No, you're going to have to you're going to have to suspend the rules. Uh, like if you're going to use sphere magic, you're going to have to, and you want it to be easier than entropy four, spirit three, life two. Uh, you're going to have to house rule it, okay. or I guess you could use dimensional science three and deal with the consequences of crossing over physically, which isn't always a good idea. That spell, um, the, the crossing over, is essentially a near-death experience plus a little bit of bolstering to keep your body alive and make sure you're still linked to it. So if you're having a, you know, high on an overdose or having a near-death experience, you, you pretty much have the same effect, except you're more vulnerable. Can you astral project your way into the underworld? Like, is there I... a way to just mentally go there? I don't have it written down. I swear there was one. Um, it's in Mage 20 somewhere. Okay. But I don't remember what the sphere, the sphere combination was. I, I think I, I found a reference in Dead Magic 2 that Life 2 Mind 4, you can kind of uh, visit the uh, the Shadowlands on an astral in an uh, in an astral form that way, but maybe nothing beyond the Shadowlands. Probably but, not. Here's the thing. There seems to be a pretty big metaphysical divide between the Shadowlands and the Tempest, uh, down to the fact that if you don't have fetters, if you're a wraith, you can't even enter the Shadowlands for very long. It okay. probably works the same way in reverse. And the Tempest is extremely damaging if you're not prepared for it. It is not a nice place to be unless you know exactly what you're doing. Okay. But it sounds like the Shadowlands and just interacting with Wraith is a, is a pretty fertile ground. Uh, so you, you, you had started going through your uh, tripartite list of, of how what interacts with what. What was, the, uh, what was the next column that you had? The next one was summoning. According to how do you do that, until you start getting into uh, crossing over – Entropy doesn't seem to be required to specify a ghost. So summoning is still just spirit three. The, the equivalent, though, of a, of a wraith just showing up would be something like embody. And I think you need to get to embody four before you can start moving around. I think embody three lets you show up as a statue. So this is you're getting to the level where, where sphere magic is significantly more powerful, significantly earlier on than wraithly powers are, but that's by design because it's not supposed to be easy for the wraiths to cross over. It's part of the whole, it sucks to be dead thing. That kind of makes sense. What is this projecting thing that you had brought up as part of Orpheus? All right. So in Orpheus, what happened was a, a firm that was looking into cryogenic preservation ended up realizing that when these people were cryogenically frozen, they were still around in like a spirit form interacting with people and they ended up setting themselves up as this what was known as a projector firm where they taught people through meditation or cryogenic preservation to project themselves as essentially as ghosts uh, orpheus made interacting with the living considerably easier again that might be metaphysically because they don't have to cross the shroud at all to see the living the projectors have no problem it's automatic to speak with the living well projectors can manifest easily uh the orpheus changed the name of some of the power the the power pools a little bit so they call it uh vitality okay um is there the, the thing they use and angst became spite oh i can get behind that uh, <laughs> I, I i feel like if you're playing a hollowed one there should be a spite bar that uh that when it gets full you get to do some sort of ultimate power where you move out of your parents basement or something oh um shots yeah so, so manifesting is actually fairly cheap out of a pool of, I think it's, I think it's a 10 cap pool. You can manifest for zero points though, depending on what kind of ghost you are, that, that can be like 
vague whispers or like a hazy shroud kind of thing. Uh, at one point you have like, you're half manifested and you, you have like half of your physical pool to work with. And at two points you're fully manifested and look like you do when you were alive. I think it lasts for a scene. And uh, yeah, you look like you do if you were alive, only more lifelike. So it's very cheap for them to interact. And it's also a lot of their powers are very easy to interact with the living with, and they come even a little more easily. I think the initial group of uh, Orpheus projectors, you can also play as a ghost in that, but it's still the same rules, basically have like puppeteers, poltergeists, banshees, wisps, and uh, I'm for uh, haunters, I think. And that, that those all sound kind of straightforward. I don't know how comfortable I am with something that can like unleash the cry of the dead but it sounds like a, a puppeteer has the ability to poke and prod mortals are there any really weird groups of wraiths that you think would be notable because it would fit particularly well with a mage campaign are there zombies or any other like shambling dead or anything like that that uh that would be like a uh, something where mages without even access to the entropy or spirit sphere may wind up essentially encountering the dead uh, yes, there is a, it's very hard to do from the side of the dead, and it's not so easy to do from the side of the living, but there is a state uh, called being a risen, where a, a wraith in conjunction with its own dark side, so its dark side has to agree to this, can crawl its way into a body and animate that body, stitching it together to look somewhat lifelike i forget honestly the rules for how dead it looks but i think they uh can pass for vampires a lot of the time which means that unless they're specifying nosferatu it means they're probably fairly close to lifelike so it um, sounds like another entree to crossover is that wraiths pardon me that a mage or a cabal is going to encounter one of these risens who i imagine is trying to finish business of some sort and since it's this entity that may have been around that has seen the underworld they may have access to the inf information that the characters um, are interested in in some sort of quid pro quo hey help me settle the score or help me solve this problem or or finish off this this concern i had while i was living and i will give you this piece of information that i've gotten because nothing is ever truly forgotten or what have you mm. Speaking of which, that also brings up something mages can do for a wraith that has not done that in return. I found this in How Do You Do That? It is a spirit for matter to prime to to create a pseudo rhythm to basically animate a corpse and stick a ghost in it. Oh, okay. So for a relatively potent cabal who who needed something super important, that is one of the services your 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 group could render to try and get yeah. a wraith. I, Even I, more I, potent would be the Spirit Five Life Four Prime Two, which lets you obliterate the soul in a body and stick a ghost in instead, a living body. That that's uh that sounds like a bit much. I feel like there's going to be some Jortaint coming out of that. Oh, um, definitely. I okay. I would not hesitate to uh, punish a cabal, at least not punish, but have consequences to to a cabal for doing something like that, unless they were like very careful and took someone who was like brain dead already, you know, that, and and did something like that. In which case, you've got a nice little hospital run where they have to avoid security guards and get in and do a ritual in a hospital room. Oh, interesting. Um, so we, we've gone over, this has been a whirlwind tour uh, of Wraith. If I'm a storyteller and I want to introduce Wraith or Ghosts or something like that to my chronicle, what references do you think I need to pick up? Uh, we live in an age of drive through RPG. So, so for, for 30 bucks or less, if I want to start spinning out some of these plot hooks, and we'll, we'll go over some more plot hooks after that, what, what, what do you think I need to pick up as a storyteller? Right now, you're not going to get uh, more bang for your buck than Wraith 20 because it really incorporated a lot of what was previously among like 10 different books. And while those books definitely doesn't go as, in as deep to, as those do, um, it does give you the broad strokes. Like if you if you wanted to do like the Orpheus projector stuff, Wraith 20 doesn't give you that much, although it gives you a lot of plot hooks that you can take your own way uh, that are very useful. I would say um, I would say that if you want to get deeply into what makes a Wraith a Wraith, uh, you want the player's guide and the shadow player's guide because you want to get at that dynamic between what uh, 
you know, what wraiths are going through and uh, what what their shadows do to them. But that's if you want to get into the weeds. If you want to leave the, if you if you want to just leave it open, like not get uh, too deeply into the nature, just don't tell your group whether what they're dealing with is a wraith or a specter or something like that and let it be a surprise. And you don't have to get too deep into the metaphysical weeds to, to run ghosts that way. Hmm. So before we, before we finish up, uh, can we just do a rundown of the groups that interact with, with wraiths and maybe some of the ways that they do, like what are the, what groups tend to associate with them? In what ways do they tend to do that? I kind of assume that the dream speakers and the uh, euthanatoi are going to be at the top of that list, but I imagine there's going to be there's going to be spinoffs or or yeah. other groups that do. Yeah, I would definitely say that first and foremost you have the euthanatoi um, because they have that initiation anyway, and because they believe so firmly in the cycle of reincarnation. Not only do they send people into the underworld, but they also have the philosophy that these wraiths are not supposed to be where they are and uh, really should be moving on, and they will force them to move on by sending them straight to oblivion if they, if need be. Hmm. Uh, wraiths do not consider that to be a good thing, and they do not consider that to be a way of moving on. They consider that to be a way of destruction. Whether the euthanatoi are right or not is uh, an open question. Sometimes, some of the ways I think of wraith, I sometimes think they probably are technically correct, but the, the wraith itself is still dying. Only the rest of the soul is moving on, as it were. Uh, and that gets into a big argument over what a wraith actually is. So, yeah, the, the mages that wraiths are most likely to encounter, they're going to have a very bad reputation for. Uh, I will, before moving on to the other groups, I'll bring this one up. According to uh, Mage 20, the, the ritual that sends someone over has uh, two specific effects. We've already covered the fact that they don't have the basic passions and fetters everyone else does. They just experience emotions like a normal person. They also manifest signs of their avatar in their corporeal form when they move over. So they don't look Mm. like themselves. They look like themselves plus whatever their avatar is. So if a wraith had an avatar uh, that was, I don't know, some kind of demon, they might manifest horns or uh, uh, hooves or something like that. I've picked a particularly visual example for this. Many wraiths have, uh, I mean, many mages have a more subtle avatar, but still, there should be something. So they're going to look different from regular ghosts. Not terribly different, because ghosts can look pretty strange, but they're going to be, it's going to be noticeable that they're odd. Okay, so my um, hermetic mage, whose avatar is a is it manifests through weather. I just picture this character in the underworld who's constantly going to be walking around with a tiny rain cloud above their head. He, um, he, but <laughs> he might, or he might like zap people, uh, like accidentally when he shakes their hand, or you know things like that. Okay. Uh, so the, the resonance uh, kind of gets cranked up to eleven, or or at least the uh, the resonance is manifest through the avatar. So that's yes. that's certainly a useful stylistic thing. Speak uh, going on to other groups. Any group that is uh, very much defined by how they interact with the people around them and if they protect them from from things. So the dream speakers and the verbena. I know I don't know to a lesser extent the order of Hermes. I'll get to them later. Uh, they might interact with uh, ghosts because they're on the lookout for things that are destroying communities and things like that. They're less likely to, to, to cross over unless they need to to solve the problem. Are there any groups that do like paranormal investigations? Like, is there a way for my uh, my my Society of Ether member or Absolutely. my? I, I mean, Society of Ether, it's like the sky's the limit as far as scientific theories goes. So, like, the Ghostbusters would fit very much as a group of Etherites if that's the way you wanted to take it. Uh, granted, if they go around doing what the Ghostbusters did, that's going to be very, very vulgar. But still, they, they, you absolutely could have a set of uh, ghost hunters there. Uh, it also wouldn't be unheard of for someone uh, like a hermetic um, to use ghosts as uh, servitors or summon them for information or something like that. They'd also be ones that are very likely to go, hey, I'll create you a form on this side. You can live on this side for a while away from the, you know, away from whoever you're trying to get away from, if they happen to have the spheres to do it. Uh, there was a spell in there about manifesting something out of ephemera. I don't know if you could modify that one with a little bit of entropy to allow a ghost to exist over as kind of a virtual fetish for a little while. Okay. 
Uh, I don't think it would function like a real fetish, but it would uh, probably allow them to, to to be on the side of the living for a bit. So it sounds like we have a we have a fair collection of of oh. of mechanisms there, and reasons. Yeah, there um, is one other group that I wouldn't say as a group they're guaranteed to to interact with dead, but they interact with everybody, and they are a significant faction in Mage, the Nefandi. Very likely, at least some of them have some significant reasons to go over to the other side. We do know there's a faction of Nefandi that worship or serve or pretend to serve the the dreams of chthonic beings that live down at the very bottom of the underworld. But they, they do exist down there, and some of the Nefandi are associated with them. But they don't. There's a large reason to believe the Nefandi didn't know that's where they were, so they're not going down there to visit them. I recently finished up a chronicle where my characters did a fair amount of interaction with the underworld and wraiths or wraithly entities. And and my big takeaways were the advantage of dealing with wraiths is their motivations are much more understandable, to me at least, than a lot of umbral entities. A wraith has friends that they are trying to take care of. They have unfinished business they're trying to deal with. They have hobbies. They have passions. They have enemies. And as far as a story goes, I find that much easier to work with than either the very basic designs of a of a jangling or a gaffling in the Umbra or versus the inscrutable motives of maybe higher umbral forms or things that you'll run into in the astral. Um, this particular chronicle dealt with dealing with the emergence of a, of a once-born, which is a fancy way of saying a giant sleeping thing that was going to eat everything if it woke up. Um, so my characters were working very di- diligently to find the pieces of a ritual to, to make that happen, or pardon me, to make that not happen. The other nice thing with Wraith is, since it is a realm of memory, as far as this chronicle went, I got to have my characters essentially time travel. I'm located in the Northeast, and one of the cities of importance was Philadelphia. It's a it's a city that has been around for, uh, for over three centuries, and uh, at least as a storyteller, I had a ball going through historical documentation of what the city used to look like, or buildings that used to be important, and, and letting them thrive in the underworld. If you're in a major metropolitan area or an area that used to have something of note that has been replaced the uh, the the Shadowland reflection of that is probably going to have that building or that statue or that piece of art or whatever. You can kind of introduce Wraith as a way of doing time travel or introducing set pieces that, that are out of time. Another interesting thing when dealing with Wraiths is there's nothing to say that they don't last for centuries, if not millennia. I, I find it interesting that in the lore of Wraith, uh, Hypatia of Alexandria is still running around operating the Library of Alexandria. This is the third instance of Hypatia to exist. There's also one that is listed as being in the uh, the Umbra of there's also one is listed as part of the historical setting. So it, it's kind of interesting that if you want your characters to literally interface with a historical entity or character, you can, which, which provides another opportunity for some crossover scenarios. Do we ever get any information on whether mages can become wraiths? Uh, they definitely can become wraiths. They lose access to their spheres if they become wraiths because um, it's not clear whether the avatar just moves on or if it, it just chills somewhere waiting for the, the wraith or shadow to get done with whatever they're doing before the whole thing moves on. But whatever the case is, wraiths don't have access to an avatar. They cannot use sphere magic. But it's uh, certainly possible to say that if you have a story where a previous member of your cabal is done in, um, that character may return as a wraith. Yes, um, it is far, far easier for a mage to become a wraith than it is for a werewolf to become a wraith. And wait, indeed, <laughs> mages are likely to have that kind of overriding motivation and high willpower that's necessary to become a wraith. Okay, that makes sense. I, I think we've done a, a pretty good overview. I think the only plot thread that we didn't mention was you had linked me to a pretty interesting story idea involving the uh, the Void Engineers. Yes. Uh, so the basic idea was, you know, the Void Engineers, they get everywhere. And then there was the Avatar Storm. And this one uh, Void ship crash-landed in the middle of this Avatar Storm and somehow crash-landed in the middle of the Tempest. The setting was in the middle of the Sixth Great Maelstrom. So the Tempest is even more of a gigantic and furious storm than usual. Uh, and something I didn't mention earlier is um, the Tempest isn't just full of winds and debris. The Tempest is full of, of uh, strange forms of specters that ride those winds and tear into everything that they can. This is doubly true during a maelstrom. Uh, so the idea of this story was a journey to find this ship in the middle of the Tempest between waves of the maelstrom and rescue these void engineers. 
whether you were doing this because you were another set of void engineers and you were trying to rescue comrades, or you were doing this because you were a bunch of traditions mages and you needed something those void engineers had, or because, hey, the void engineers actually do have some allies among the traditions, even if most of them wouldn't admit it. So this sounds like it could almost be like uh, similarly to in World War II when the allies were trying to capture code books. You have resources who indicate, hey, this, this void ship has gone down. The crew appears to be dead. And this would be an amazing chance to get a otherwise fully functional piece of technocracy kit. Or the crew or some of the crew is still might still be alive and this is an excellent time to get a defector oh okay that sounds pretty neat uh the, the well i think the reason i bring that one up is one of the things the thread touched on is uh okay so here you have this ship if it had living void engineers on it they've been being hammered by specters for how long and specters don't just attack they also try to get in at your dark side and and uh manipulate you uh, are they going to believe that you're that the the uh, players are there to rescue them when they finally show up? Uh, other questions were, how are the players even going to navigate the tempest? You've got three to three or four different groups that could you could help. You've got um, the hierarchy could do it. They're they're certainly going to have the most rates that could do it, but they're not going to want to help the living without a really good reason. They're in fact probably going to want to imprison the living. You've got renegades. Uh, you've got renegades or the um, one of the guilds that has to do, they're, they're called the, the um, Harbingers Guild, and they, their whole shtick is uh, dealing with the Tempest. But you have to find them. They're pretty well hidden. Renegades are, uh, they might sell you off to the highest bidder. You've got um, ferrymen who are still around that are pretty much doing their own thing for their own reasons. Uh, the advantage is if they do decide to help you, no force on earth is going to stop them from helping you. They won't sell you out for any reason, but you have to, they're even harder to find and you'd have to convince them. And finally, you've got specters who, this is the, the fun one, they'll help you for a price. The price might not even seem that bad, and it might not even be that bad to you. Okay. But they'll probably get something horrible out of it. So there's all this navigating of a of another world that you do not understand. You don't understand what's going on with it or why people are acting the way you, they are. And and I love the fact what you said earlier about um, wraiths being the most understandable. They absolutely are. All of their motivations are human. And yet they can switch what those human motivations are on a dime if their sides swap. They're understandable right up until the moment that they're not, or right up until they, the moment that they are, but only through a different lens. So they, they stay understandable, but their motivations may suddenly swap. So they are a different kind of, they are inconsistent rather, rather than inscrutable. Exactly. Consider how you're going to portray the difference between the dark and light sides of the wraith. They might be completely separate. That is canonically what's happened. But it doesn't necessarily mean they don't care about what the other one does. They just view them through different lenses. If a uh, wraith and his dark side both highly value a uh, uh, a person, you know, the wraith loves this one person. Let's say uh, her husband in life, and the the shadow does too. But the shadow can't help itself; it keeps pointing out all the flaws in this person. It, it keeps pointing out everything time that they let down that they weren't worthy of that love, etc. Until the point that the wraith says. Uh, you know, well, why do I even like the the the, the husband's in danger on the race? Like, why do I even bother? Should we even help him out? And the shadow, the shadow is aghast. Of course, we should help him out. Of course, we should do that. What kind of sick, depraved person wouldn't help a loved one out? What kind of person are we? That's, that's an interesting how, sentence. <laughs> that's how the shadow gains angst. That's what it feels like. What kind of person are we? Um, I feel like that's a good summary of uh, of wraith as a system. So we have been talking about the mechanics of a game um, that is quite different than Mage, but kind of set in a, in a shared universe for a little over an hour now. If the audience is interested in us doing another deep dive either into another system uh, for crossover potential or doing a uh, Wraith crossover 2.0 where we discuss the mechanics of an actual crossover chronicle where maybe you have uh, mixed wraithly players and and mage players by all means please email us at mage the podcast at gmail.com i'm philly curiosity on the the onyx path forums uh, if you want to contact me directly there david thank you so much for your time is there a project that you'd like to shout out or anywhere else on the internet that you'd like to direct our listeners to if they found what you've had to say uh, interesting or want to get in contact with you 
Absolutely. I usually describe myself as David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman and co-host of the Geekly Oddcast podcast. You can find us pretty much wherever you can find podcasts. We uh, cover a variety of uh, geekly and pop culture uh, topics. We sometimes uh, assign each other like terrible, terrible games like corrupting childhood movies into horror stories and things like that. And uh, half the podcast is uh, we call Otter Worlds, and it is our actual play RPG podcast where we basically play one-shots of various systems and uh, try to take the same story and play it in different settings. That's kind of fascinating. Uh, and for audience members, I, I don't know what order this episode will go out, but I've made mention that uh, the that Adam Simpson and I are working uh, tentatively on a project we're calling Mage the Ascension Tutorial Mode, where we do run-throughs of some system basics for Mage. And chances are, if that gets off the ground, David may be one of the participants. So thank you in advance for doing that. Any closing comments? I would just say uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, I would add to the to the audience, we are uh, Geekly Oddcast is on hiatus, but we'll be back in March, most likely. Um, and uh, you can check us out. Um, we should have our Facebook page up soon as we uh, gear up for our second season. But I wish you all good gaming. Have fun with these games because there is no limit to what you can do with Mage and Wraith. Thank you so much. And uh, as my traditional sign off, bye. <laughs>